Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, Nature Nerds, to another episode of You're Gonna Die Out There. This is uh, Megan. I'm sitting across from my co-host, Jen. Hello. Hello, and happy holidays. Happy holidays. So, Megan, Mm -hmm. did you notice, I know we talk about it sometimes, the uh, new decorations on the road in your village? I have been wanting to talk to you about this. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't talked about it yet, and I drive by it every day that I drop my kids. I feel like we may have mentioned it before on the pod, but no, we do. The pink, the The pink pink deer, the pink deer. Yes. Uh, Okay, so it's Christmas time. Uh huh. I saw that they mowed, and then we were driving the next morning. Listen, it's Guam. You have to you have to constantly constant mow. mow, mow, There's no cold time, (laughs) and we're like driving my son to school, and then Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my god. There's snowmen this year. I was like, oh, where's the pink deer though? Like what? So now it's like tire snowmen. Yeah. Okay. And we get to the very last one. You need to one, post a picture. The very last one right before the mobile station. <laughs> yeah. And his little arms are sticking straight out like this. Oh, because you were coming that way. See, yeah, I was we, coming the other, the other way. way. So he's the first he's one the first I see. One and he's great. He's the best one. He's the best one. Because also when you're coming at him from They're like the tree back, branches. He's like, yay. Like he yeah. was like, so Damien and I have this like joke about that snowman. We're just like, Wee! <laughs> yeah, that his arms or sticks, sticks are yeah. out and he has like a little um, woven hat. Yeah. Like a, you know, like go outside and work sun hat. Yeah. They, so they got tires. They stacked them. I feel like it's Painted very, crea- like, it's very it's, creative. I want to have a tire snowman. Yes. Like I was like, that's it. I'm going to go find some, aban- and which you can really find cute. tires everywhere. So, so. cute. <laughs> Yeah, one of them has like a coconut. Yes. Like they recycled stuff to make these decorations and I love it. They so I, great. It's like I miss the pink deer, okay? I miss the hot pink deer. The They're shiny so glossy and shiny glossy. But this is like another level, I think. Also there's like five or six of them. There's a lot. Well, I think there is so I think there's a new mayor, that's why. Oh. So the old mayor must have shipped out with the pink deer. <laughs> the old <laughs> maybe they're in they front of like, the house in front get of the house here with your pink deer. <laughs> right? Yeah. I just yeah, I kind of love it. Man. They used to have these big letters that spelled like joy and peace and they would light up. It was really nice. But nice. I don't know what happened to those. Maybe that was the mayor before. These are better. Yeah. The snowmen are better. And yeah, it's just they just look so jovial. And excited to be there. And it's like Guam snowmen. You know, it's like, it's tires. They're tires. And it makes so much sense. It's perfect. Yeah. Anyway. Good job. So I was going to do another episode today. Yes. And I changed it because I read, actually, I think I was watching like some reels or a TikTok or something and saw this video. Mm -hmm. It sparked my interest. It's about mountaineering, trekking, climbing. Okay. Okay. And I was thinking that's maybe more snowy appropriate holiday holiday appropriate seasonal even though it's really sad and wild but at the same time oh god yeah so yeah there was this you may have seen it or some listeners may have Mm -hmm. seen it or heard of it there was some recent news from the world of mountaineering and there was a tragic story of a porter kind of similar to a sherpa right um working on k2 Mm. i'll go into that story but i'm gonna talk about k2 for a minute because I feel like you mentioned it on one of the episodes but we never 
talk talk about it. I think you were just talking about the, the eight thousand miler. Yes. Wait, no meter. They not miler. All of eight thousanders. Yeah, all of which the is super, meters. Super high mountains. It's basically the highest mountains. Yeah, and there's yeah. like a a certain number of them that are over eight thousand that people try to. It's their list, their bucket list for like extreme mountaineering. Yes. Which I would never in a million years in this lifetime be interested in doing. That's just not, it's not my thing. Yeah. So it's hard for me to imagine why. The motivation. You would want to do it, but I get it. I mean, I get it that that it's for some people that just, they love climbing. They love the, I guess. The adrenaline. Adrenaline, is it? The thin air. I think it's the, it's like. It's a badge of honor to mm-hmm. have, you know, achieved that if you're if that's your thing. Yeah. I think my thing about mountaineering is that I'm so much of a meanderer when it comes to hiking. <laughs> like I'm just really slow. And those kind of hikes, you have to be on a time schedule. Oh, yeah. Like you have to make where you're going. And I would be too slow. I would just end up dying. I just would be <laughs> too scared. I mean, honestly, that, yeah. that well, stuff is so really scary up. to me. Yeah. And on those steep. Like the anyway, gusts of wind, wind, and, and just avalanches, and just I the, just can't. I forget what it was and called. You're cold. But those those things where you can just fall between like big pieces of a rock crevasse. And the crevasse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. things. Yeah. Nope. So K two. Mm-hmm. So we're just we're just gonna focus on that one. It's the second highest mountain in the world. Its peak is twenty eight thousand two hundred and fifty one feet, which is eight thousand six hundred eleven meters above sea level. And it's part of the Karakoram, I think is how you say it, mountain range that straddles um, the Pakistan and China border. Mm. And there's, it's where p- pretty much that long stretch of where all like the Himalayans, all the mountains, like all yeah. the big mountains are. So it's also known as Savage Mountain, which I kind of like that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Savage. Because it's so difficult to climb and it has a high fatality rate. The first successful ascent was by Italian, an Italian expedition in 1954. Hey, Italiano. 54, though. 19, that's not that long ago. That's not. Wow. Um, though not every climb since has been very successful, and I'm going to talk about some of those. They say that a quarter of those attempting to climb K2 have died as a result <laughs> of their efforts. Wow. So, side note, there are some animals there. Do you know oh. which ones? Are they spiders? <laughs> Well, I mean, in the region, we'll say oh, the okay, region, okay. probably not all the way at the top of the summit, but something we just talked, you just talked leopards? about. Yes. Yay! So they're in the area. Yeah, yeah. Right. So in that, along that whole range. Right. Also, there's Marco Polo sheep, which I think you talked about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Ibex, mm-hmm. yes. the Markor, which I'm not sure what that, I'm not sure. There's different named animals, but I yeah. think they're all like goaty, sheepy. <laughs> Ungulate. <laughs> Ungulate. <laughs> Or like a small marmot or something, like a like a tiny mouse or rat or yeah ferret. And so those like snow leopards prey on there's pikas, hares, and game mm-hmm. birds mm-hmm. at the lower. I'm sure like different elevations, Levels. right? There's yeah. different animals. There's also mountain weasels, beech marten. I don't know b e e c h, not okay. like. Just like on the beach. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> They're in the mountains. It's like I'm a beech marten. Someone really messed up that name, right? <laughs> Brown bear. Is in the area. Bears. Brown bears. It makes me think of the kids, the kids book. Oh, yeah. Brown bear. Brown bear. What do you see? I see an elephant. Looking at me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That wasn't right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a red fox and Tibetan wolf, which at first I was like, the Tibetan wolf. Is that the one with the weird face? But it's not. 
It's not the Tibetan wolf. Oh, okay. The Tibetan wolf is also like really close to the Himalayan wolf. They kind of go hand in hand, but I guess genetically they're slightly different. Mm. I started to talk about it and I was like, they're not really in this area of the story I'm talking about. And also I have like 30 pages of notes to go through. So I was like, <laughs> that's your nature bit. You were like, that's, all you're, that's all you're getting. <laughs> oh, and bird species. There's a few. I'm not going into it. There's a couple of, like, there's a few, but at lower elevations. Sure, sure, sure. Because they're like, that's cold <laughs> up there. They're like, yeah. There's really not much to eat. There's also three species of lizards, um, but no amphibians. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> surprise. Some other interesting facts about K2. It's second only to Mount Everest, which mm-hmm. you did do a store on Mount Everest. I and I don't know if it's the one where you talked about K2. You might have talked about K2. As mm-hmm. far as, like, in terms of height above sea level, but actually... We already talked about this. The highest point Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is in Hawaii, if you take away the sea level aspect of it. But there's also... uh, Mount Lam Lam. Well, but so I, you know, there's really not... I can't find where that's... Like a true thing. Like a true thing. Because what they said is that Mount... Which mountain is it in Hawaii? Haleakala? Or, uh, no. or Mauna Loa. Mauna Loa. Yeah. That one. Or Ma- oh, Mauna Kea. Sorry. Ma- sorry. Oh, Mauna yeah. Loa is the company that makes... <laughs> oh, shit. Okay, Mauna Kea. So yeah. that one is... If you take away the sea level, that's supposed to be the highest point, And it's at like 10,000 some feet, right? Uh-huh. And then... But if you actually look at when the, the Challenger Deep or whatever, when they did that deep dive in the Marianas Trench. Yeah. So about 194 miles away from Mount Lam Lam, which is here on Guam. Mm-hmm. If you take that depth to Mount Lam Lam, it's... Like 11,000 something feet. 11,000. You mean uh, like 110,000? Oh, sorry. Meters. 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 I'm sorry. I got you. Meters. Sorry. It's all good. Meters, feet. It's all the same. (laughs) It's totally the same. Yeah, because it's like a local thing that people say here. Mm-hmm. Oh, the high! You want to go to Mount Lam Lam? That's the highest peak in the world, you know. And you're like, where America's Day begins. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, yeah, yeah. it could be. I mean, sure. Well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we just, if we took away the ocean, <laughs> if you took away the ocean and just went from the in the like the earth, the depths, the depths to the top, to the top, I think we win. Yeah. So every time you go to Mount Lam Lam. I'm I'm gonna be like second K two. We already like <laughs> we already did like this. Yeah, we've peaked the highest point in the world. I've actually never been to Mount Lam Lam. You haven't? Well, it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's... We've been a couple of times. We you should go with us. My seven year old has been to the yeah, top of yeah. Mount Lam, so I know you can it, do it. It's possible. Totally. Um. Yeah, I think what it is is that uh, it's so exposed to the elements, Jen. You know, it's so uh, of course because of course because it's <laughs> the, the tallest. <laughs> it's the tallest uh, peak in the world. That's why you know it's you're exposed out there. You are to the sun. There, it's, and the sword I mean, grass. it's slightly hot. It's a little slippery. <laughs> there is sword grass. Yeah. So K two was originally named by a British surveyor named T G Montgomery. Perfect. I don't know. That sounds like a made-up name. <laughs> I know, right? But like, it's British. Like like a fishmonger. Mongomery. Um, and that was in 1852. The K was in reference to Karakoram because they're like, that's long. We don't want to keep saying that, I guess. And the two referring to the fact that it was the second peak recorded in the region. Oh. So oh, there's that's... like... That's kind of a sad uh, name for a mountain. You know, well, you should like it because that's how you think you know, animals I was just should be about named. To say that I, yeah, I don't like how you people give uh, anthropomorphic names to wildlife, but I will say, like for a mountain, though, it should have its name. It should have some stories, you know, some mystique. Well, just, you could just call it Car- Caracorum. 
Karakorm too. Yeah. Or just Karakorm. Because the K2, so, but it's stuck for whatever reason. Yeah. And there's other ones. There was like K1, K2, K3, and there's like different names for these other mountains like Mm -hmm. along the way. And they all, their names stuck, but only K2 stuck with this one. It is kind of a neat sounding name. Oh, yeah. K2. Sounds very like. Hip. Yeah. I just went on the K2. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there like a movie called uh, something like that? I'm sure. Wasn't there like a Keanu Reeves movie? Like <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed. For so, but other people like the Chinese have a different name. They call it Korgir. I think it means great mountain. The Tibetans call it Chogori, which means large mm-hmm. mountain. And there's others that refer to it, which I'm not a big fan of this one, is Mount. Goodwin Austin after Henry Goodwin Austin, who was um, an early explorer. I'm like, no, it's okay. N- not Tibetan or Chinese. Yeah, let's just yeah, let's let's, stick with the... <laughs> I feel like K2 is good. K2. <laughs> In 1986, there was an expedition led by George Wallenstein, incorrectly labeled it as the tallest mountain in the world. But I guess they hadn't... I don't know. In 1986, they hadn't actually like done the correct Measure? measurements. Oh. So then they they measured it again and they're like, nope, nope, nope. It's the second... Mm-hmm. Everest is only 800 feet or 244 meters higher. I feel like, yeah, if you're on K2 and then I, I could see where you'd just be like, eh, it's basically the same. I mean, yeah. That's fine. But K2 is, as for a mountaineer or a climber, is on another level as far as like how dangerous it is. Mm-hmm. So the fatality rate is like 25% for, was anyway for K2 and if for Everest it's about 5%. Right. But I also think like a lot more people go to Everest. Yeah, it's more commercialized I think. Yeah. Right? And they say that also nobody has ever attempted to try to ascend it in the winter because it would be insane. You would just die immediately. Exactly. It is it's really really dangerous. So it's even in the summer months when people go, which is between mm-hmm. June and August, I guess is the only time people can go. Mm-hmm. It's still like there's like there's a storm, there's this, there's that. That's and that's that's summer. Yeah. Yeah. The Italian climber Ardito Desio. Mm. Totally said that, right? That was great. Led the successful ascent of K2 Mountain in um, July 1954. But it was, that's like I was saying, the Italians. But it was a controversial climb, I guess, with only two members of the team actually reaching the summit. And since then, Wanda, I don't know how to say her last name, Coot. This is like, this whole episode is going to be me trying to pronounce people's names. Because it's like people from all over the world that are climbing this mountain. And it's like really hard. It's really hard, you guys. I didn't even try to like practice because there's just so many. (laughs) Coot's. They say Kutz Kaiwitz, and mm-hmm. I feel like I should say her full name because she was the first woman to successfully climb the uh, K2 peak mm-hmm. in June 1986. And then a Spanish climber, Carlos Soria Fontan, was the oldest to reach the peak at age 65 in 2004. So there's still time, Jen. I'm good. <laughs> I have other bucket list items. Yeah, yeah. Like I need to go and like. Go to where they have the orangutan rescue and like right, right, right. hold them. I, whenever we talk about these like mountain stories, I always try to think about who was the very first like Homo sapien ever. Yeah. Who like looked at a mountain and said, I want to know what's at the top. I want to climb that. I want to climb that. Like everybody else in the village, community, whatever. They're like, group. I need to survive. 
They're like, why? There's no food. Is there? Is there food up there? Is is are there, there woolly like, mammoths up there? Is there a lot of food up there? Like, can we get it? Right. Is yeah. that why you're going up there? I want to go over there where there's we can hunt. You see all these and uh, get food because life animals? is really hard. They're here, not there. Why would you want to go? And we yeah. only live to be like forty. So I think I should like <laughs> make the best of it. Yeah, but yeah, who was that first person? I want to know. I, yeah, obviously we'll never know. I but I that first adventurer. It had to be a European, yeah, or somebody of European colonizing <laughs> backgrounds that well, was like those explorers. It could have been like a vision quest for you know what I mean, like like an indigenous tribe or something. Who knows? Maybe. I mean, could have been. been. But like, what if it was just like a show of manhood for right. some? Go to the top of that mountain. And make it back down. Yeah. Like, what was that? Uh, like, Easter Island? Oh, yeah. Where they had to, like, climb up the side. Like, didn't they have to, like, swim out and then climb up the side of, like, the... What was that? What was that I watched? A documentary or movie? Oh. oh I love when I, we're on the podcast and we're like, what was what that was thing? That thing? <laughs> uh, what was that <laughs> thing? I just recently saw a video of... Uh, there's a, like, a coming of age ritual and i forget where it is i think it's someplace in africa where they build a tower oh no wait, it might be asia they build a giant tower and then uh-huh. they essentially bungee jump off of the top of that tower but the rope is like oh just yes. long enough yes that they like skim the ground uh-huh and i'm like nope yeah no There's, i would just be a child forever i like- will never come of age I will be a man child. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Continue. Um, so anyway, so Mount Everest versus K2. It's mm-hmm. like you can you climb Mount Everest. Everyone's like, cool. Yeah. You get your your coolness your badge. Yeah, but yeah, K2 yeah. is like you get respect. Elite. Yeah, that's yeah. the elite for sure. According to Wikipedia, as of August 2022, an estimated 700 people have completed the summit and 96 have died trying. Uh, a fatality rate of about 13.7%, which is lower than that 25%. Right, right, right. As of 2023, this number is now 97. That's the one I'm going to talk about later. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's one of the hardest peaks in mountaineering. It's the deadliest of the five highest mountains in the world. And they say that the topography is more difficult than Everest because less of the mountain flattens off. It's oh. also really prone to rock falls and avalanches. Yeah. This sounds real safe. I know. And also there's a... Well, okay. I'll get into it later. So the climbing, like I said, it's from June to August only because the winter is crazy. Mm-hmm. But I did see an article when I was looking at all this that Everest this year in 2023 had the highest number of deaths <gasps> ever. Oh. Yeah. So it was 18 this Whoa. year. But it also had the highest number of permits issued. Oh, okay. So... More people, more problems. Problems. Yeah. So, I mean, just overall, like, I didn't really go to, and in the end, I go into it a little bit more, mm-hmm. but it's like the amount of people. So they're saying like back in the day, yeah. and I can imagine these are older climbers that have done all this and they're like sitting there and they're like, yeah, in my day, they didn't make it so easy. Right. So now people have porters or Sherpas mm-hmm. that go up and they, they prep everything. Yeah. And they kind of basically hold your hand, carry your stuff, and oh, get you up walk there. Walk you up there. Yeah. I mean, you still, it's still dangerous. It's mm-hmm. not like it's not dangerous because of you don't know what could happen, right? But, but you're not the one putting the, the holds in. And, but you're not yeah. the one 
yeah, getting yourself up there for the most part. Now, I'm not sure. saying everybody, but this is kind of like generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And you can pay a lot of money for this. Yeah. And there's also now that there's more of a demand to get up to do this um, for people, that there's more and more of these Sherpa companies, porters that are not well equipped, not mm-hmm. well trained. They're people that need to make some money. And so it yeah. could be dangerous. And it's, They say it's getting a little out of hand. And there was a lot of scrutiny over, I think it's Tibetan people that, uh, government that gives out the permits for Everest, Mm. right? And they were, there's a lot of scrutiny about like they gave out too many permits. Right. It was too much. Like they need to tone it down, but they also need to make money. So what do you do? (laughs) Right. Anyway. So I feel like a lot of it to me is like these people, like obviously you and I are never going to try and do this. So there's a certain group of people that love, to do this? Never say never, Jen. <laughs> I mean, I mean true. I agree. Yeah, no, never. But I mean, so what I'm saying is that there's people out there. This is yeah. their thing. Mm-hmm. They know the risks, so they need to know all the things. Yeah. And so if they're still willing to take that risk, then knowing right. that they could be with a company that maybe is ill-equipped or mm-hmm. ill-trained, I don't know. Anyway. All right. I'm going to talk about a couple of what they call K2 t- disasters. Okay. Three of them. Mm-hmm. That happens over the years. And then I'll get to our story. And the, there's one in 1986, one in 1995, and one in 2008. Mm-hmm. The one in 2008 is really a lot. But I'm okay. going to do my best to talk about them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so here we go. 1986, there was a period from August 6th to August 10th where there was five mountaineers that died during a severe storm. Eight other climbers were killed in the weeks preceding, bringing the total number for that season to 13. Wow. So from June 21st to August 4th, that kind of first part of the summer, the first casualties that happened was on an American expedition. The team wanted to be the first to summit in that season, and they want, or the first to summit that season, but also to climb this area called the Southwest Pillar, known as Magic Line. Um, the team leader was John Smolich. I told you, it's going to be rough. Alan Pennington. Um, and they were killed in an avalanche on June 21st. Pennington's body was pulled out by other climbers who saw what happened. But uh, John Smolich, his body has never been recovered. Oh. Yeah. The rest of the team left after that incident. Obviously, they were like, we're done. We're done. Yeah. 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 On June 23rd, that same summer, French climbers Lillian and Maurice Barrard, they reached the summit um, just 30 minutes after their teammate, when I told you about the mm-hmm. Polish lady, Wanda, that was the first woman to summit. Yeah. They were right behind her. So Lillian was so close, only just 30 minutes from being the first woman. Wanda just pushed her aside. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> just knocked her back. No, but they were climbing without bottled oxygen. Oh. And that night, all three, along with another team member whose name is Michael Parmentier, and there was two Basque, is that how you say it, climbers? Mm. It's, I had to look it up. I was like, where? They had to make an emergency improvised shelter, like, close to the summit. Mm. And they all made it through the night, I guess. What These improvised shelters, like, sometimes it's just open, sometimes it's under rocks, like, it's just using whatever you can find. But the couple... Uh, the French couple, Lillian and Maurice, they disappeared at some point during the descent. And Lillian's body was recovered three weeks later, but Maurice's was not found until 1998. Oh, wow. So that was like 
12 years later. A Polish climber, Tad Zeus, some, I can't say his name, felt, I'm sorry, you have to just look it up. Uh, He fell after he had already been to the summit. It says uh, he fell to his death after a successful summit of the central rib of the south face on July 10th. And six days later, Italian soloist, Renato Casaroto fell into a crevasse and what he was not able to make it to that southwest pillar. I guess that's like a really hard one to get. He was mm. rescued from the crevasse, but then he died shortly after that. Mm. And then again on August 3rd, there was another um, party for this Slovak Polish team, and they had successfully summited that southwest pillar without using bottled oxygen. But he slipped off the end of a fixed rope and fell to his death. No. Like all of this, when I read it, I'm like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> like just either you and and when they say people fell to their death, like did they die right then? I always think about that because nobody knows. Nobody knows. Because it's so far. I mean, you hope. Honestly, you hope that it's so far that you impact really hard and die. Like I, I would, would hope. But I would the want. other thing, I guess, is that. There's a lot of factors working against you, but maybe for you in that situation, which mm-hmm. is that it's so cold that you can yeah. just go to sleep. Yes. And that's it. I think I think that's the saving like factor. Yeah, that's the thing that I think about if you are like, let's say you're lost at sea in the water uh-huh. and you know, you don't get eaten, hopefully, uh-huh. that you just get so cold, you get hypothermic and you just go to sleep. Yeah. You just doze off. Doze off. I'm like, that sounds that yeah, in good. the snow. I mean, you just doze off, go to sleep. Well, and I think too, the stories where people where we've like like people have survived and then they were but they were close to that. Uh-huh. Like they had like a near death experience in snow and they talk about it. What always like trips me out is that they are like freezing, 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 and then all of a sudden they're just warm. Yeah. And they're just like it just feels it's like your body's coping mechanism. Yes. And that I think that maybe that is not that I want to die in a cold place, but <laughs> right. But like that's the saving grace, right? Coldness, freezing to death. Well, I hope that I. You always hope nobody suffered, right? Yes, At yes. least not for very long. Um, there was another one uh, incident on August fourth. The Muhammad Ali, who was a sardar, I think is how you say it, or mm. sard sardir is another way I saw it. They're Sherpa mountain guides, and they manage all the other Sherpas in a climbing expedition. So they're oh, like okay. high ranking Sherpas. Oh, okay? that's neat. Yeah. So he was a sirdar for a South Korean expedition, and he was killed by falling rocks. No, on this ab abruzzi spur, which is a something you hear again and again. I think it's a really common way that they go up, mm. and that was difficult weather conditions. You know, during that time, caused rock falls and all these other situations. But and there were other injuries, near fatalities throughout that summer. It was just a bad summer. The summer of 1986, not so good. Yeah. I mean, it was a good year for me, but I was only six. Right. Living in Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) Just living your best life. And then, so here's that time again from, so those were kind of like the people that went earlier that summer. Um, So from August 6th through 10th, Alan Rouse, he was the leader of a British expedition and he had a permit to climb that difficult, this difficult Northwest Ridge instead of that conventional climb. And there were a couple of unsuccessful attempts to establish camps on their route. So the group kind of split up and it just left him and his cameraman, this guy, Jim Curran, on the mountain. But Curran then went back to base camp, but Alan Rouse continued. 
So he went up and he met up with another bunch of people. Mm -hmm. He didn't have oxygen. So these six other climbers that he met up with were from... There was uh, a Polish lady. There was another British climber. And they were all... It was just like a mishmash of those who actually got to that point. And I find that with all these stories, it's like you start out with your group. Some make it. Some don't. Like they turn around. Not that they don't make it. They turn around. And then you end up like at different levels of these camps. Yeah. Which is like whoever could get there. Right? <laughs> and so, and then they all kind of band together. Okay, now we're going to go and they work together to go. Mm-hmm. Like they form a new team, right? So now they had made it to camp four, which I think is the last camp before you summit. summit. Mm. And the climbers, for some reason, decided to wait a day and the weather was starting to deteriorate. But in, I don't know why, but they set out for the summit. One of the Austrian climbers, he quickly tried, I guess he tried and then ended up dropping back. And Alan Rouse continued alone. Two of the Austrian climbers, there was a guy, Willie Bauer and Alfred Emitzer, caught up with him like later, they say 330 feet below the summit. And then and then Alan fa- fell behind the Austrians, remember he's the British guy. Mm-hmm. But eventually the three of them reached the summit around 4 p.m. on August 4th. And so Alan Rouse was the first Englishman to reach the summit. Oh, okay. So he got that. On the way down, they were about 500 feet below the summit, and they found that the guy who held back, the oh, Austrian, right. yeah, yeah, his yeah. last name is Wolf. I, his whole first name is kind of hard to pronounce, but he was asleep in the snow. Oh, no. My apologies. That's a lady. She was asleep in the snow and persuaded her to go back down. They're like, we need to go. Yeah, you like, can't come with us. take a nap. Yeah. They also met Kurt... Demberger and Julie Tullis, and they were on their way up, and they tried unsuccessfully to persuade them to turn back because the weather oh, was no. getting bad. Yeah, and those two did make it. They summited at seven p.m., Ooh. which is getting a little late. Yeah, but on the descent, Julie Tullis fell. She survived, but they were forced to spend the night. And they say it. I looked at. Be, I can't remember how to say this. It's by vote. Bivac, bivac, biovac. Oh, the the the. Bi- it's not biovac. It's bivac, bivac, bivac. I wrote it. I wrote it somewhere else. Anyway, I'll say it later. But because I spelled it out for myself, but yeah, I yeah. didn't put it here. But it basically is when you have to make a shelter. Right. I remember we talk about that. We've talked about it. In yeah. A couple. Yeah. And I also struggle with that word because there's like a U in it somewhere. Weird. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll yeah. say it better later. Anyway, so they had to stay the night in the open. Like, they couldn't really build a shelter. Yeah. So, eventually, all the climbers made it to Camp 4, and there was a few that, I guess, had stayed behind because Mm -hmm. there was a storm. And then the storm got bad over that night. It was, like, wind over 99 miles per hour or 160 kilometers per hour, sub-zero temperatures. They had no food, and they had no gas to melt the snow into water, which is a thing. Yikes. Yeah. So, the team members, they were in really bad shape, the altitude was 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet. And you need at least six liters of, or like a one and a half gallons of water, a fluid per day, so that you don't, your blood doesn't thicken. Yeah. And so when the oxygen. Oh, oh that made, sorry, Jen, that made my, that made my knees hurt. Like there's like certain things that make me. Blood if I were, thickening. Oh, if I were like standing up, I would just, I think, I think I would faint. I think it would be a thing. I've never fainted in my life, knock on wood, but. 
it's just a it, when when people talk about surgeries or like if you're in biology class, they start talking about your circulatory system for some uh-huh. reason. It makes my eyes feel weird and my knees buckle. Like I just won't be able. To, oh, oh, blood thickening. One oh. more reason. <laughs> so this just won't be on your bucket list. And that, given the oxygen saturation of the air at that altitude, is it's only a third of that at sea level. A third. Oh. So the risk <laughs> of death by hypoxia is like. So gonna it's high and that's what happened is she died that i'm just checking her first name again because it just says her last name tolis mm. um, she passed away the night of august 6th or 7th mm. they say presumably of high altitude pulmonary edema which is when you have lack of oxygen the other six climbers stayed at the camp for for the next three days but they were like barely barely conscious and on august 10th the snow stopped the temperatures but temperatures dropped it got worse Mm. the wind continued and they were super dehydrated but they were like we have to go down alan rouse like they say when he was conscious this is the british guy that was the first to make it to the top yeah yeah he was in like a lot of pain probably is frostbitten yeah just not okay that's the other bad thing is when you get that cold it hurts yeah the pain. The other climbers had to leave him behind in his tent to save their own lives. Oh my said. God. And they say it was a decision that the other climbers would be very criticized for later. But they say that there was absolutely no way that they would be able to have carried him down the mountain to, mountain alive. Yeah. And I think that the whole point of this story and all of these stories is mm-hmm. that those extreme conditions lead people to do things they wouldn't normally do. Right. Like I would hope, I would hope that most people in this world wouldn't walk, like step over a a dying person or leave a dying person without doing anything. Right. On the street and everyday life. Like just walking around. Right. But when you're in extreme, an extreme condition and it's basically this person is dying, I can't help them. And if I do try to help them, I will die. die. Yeah. And that we talk about this a lot. Yeah. In these situations. It's it's really a life and death situation. Yeah. And I don't think anybody sitting on their couch <laughs> can like judge that person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and and I think the people usually it's like the people who have been in those situations or are extreme climbers or whatever totally get it. Yeah. But there's such a small number of people in the grand scheme of like humanity, right? Like these like people who go on these crazy hikes or they mountaineer on K2. Like that's mm-hmm. such a small group of people that can understand and empathize with the person that just had to leave. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the world is like, you suck. Yeah. And you're like, but you guys weren't there. You don't know. You don't know. Yeah. So the two Australian climbers, that was Willie Barrow and Alfred Emirates, they had snow blindness, blindness and uh. they collapsed a few hundred feet from camp and they could not be revived. <gasps> Oh, um, no. And then the Polish woman that fell asleep, yeah. um, like he'll drag his, her name was like Dobroslawa, mm-hmm. but the last name was Wolf. She was the last one to try to descend. She never made it back. Mm-hmm. And this is the worst part: is a year later, there were some members of a Japanese expedition that found her attached to the fixed ropes, still standing upright and leaning against a wall. No. I mean, she literally, like, she was just, she was exhausted. Yeah. Like, she couldn't go anymore. And she just leaned back and was there a year later. That's so sad for her. Well, I'm just glad they found her, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's good they found her. But can you imagine? 
just you're on a hike and then you walk up and just somebody is frozen dead in front I'd of be you? like, well, that's a message from the heavens. I feel like, I why to... don't you just turn around at that moment? I would. I would turn around. But a lot of people, they've paid like who knows how much 50 grand for this they've waited yeah. their whole life they've waited years to it's not always that much it can right, be like right, ten thousand right. or whatever sure, sure, sure. whatever but they had to pay for this yeah. ex- it's a lot of money mm-hmm. i get it yeah and the person's dead you didn't dead that person right <laughs> you know like you're just like well that's what happens right this, these things can happen this is the risk it's the risk and yeah. you're taking you're paying a lot of money to take the risk yes yeah, I, I still think i would definitely turn around I you mean, would, I wouldn't be there in the first place. Right, right. <laughs> so, so, but they they reported it, and she was brought down. They brought her. Oh, good. I don't know if they brought her down. It doesn't say somebody brought her down. But I'm sure they radioed, or yeah, they were with porters or sherpas or somebody that was like, "Hey, here she is. Mm-hmm. We need to get her down so her family can have a, you know, yeah, a funeral, a proper." funeral so the two remaining climbers the ones that they say um so there was willie bauer and kurt dienberger um those were the two that were left they found that camp three had been blown away by those crazy winds Mm. they were able to make it to camp two on august 10th bauer made it to base camp by himself but the other guy dienberger was um I guess he had to be brought down by some other Polish climbers and they were helicoptered out. And both of them lost fingers and toes because of frostbite. Um, In 1995, it's kind of similar. There were six people reported that died on August, again in August, um, Mm -hmm. on the 13th. Bad weather, high winds. There was an American team that they had a permit to climb the K2 that summer and... The remnants of this team joined forces with, you know, I said there's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, with New Zealand and Canadians at Camp Four, and about twelve hours from being able to summit. Mm-hmm. But later that day, they joined with another Spanish team of mountaineers at Camp Four, and also New Zealander Peter Hillary, which I feel like well we talked maybe, about this. He's the son of the Everest pioneer Sir Edmund Hillary. I was going to say, is, is he related to, um, yeah, yeah, Sir Hillary? Um, Which and the Hillary step is that one you talked about that this. I talked about that. Yeah. yeah so yeah. here's the thing is Peter Hillary was like, he turned back. He was mm-hmm. like, you know what? The weather, it was been good. It's I can tell it's not good. And I'm going back. I feel like follow that guy. Yeah. Because his dad was his a- dad's the guy. Yeah. So, so at 6.45 p.m., still the weather was okay. This um, Allison Hargreaves and Spaniard Javier Olivar. Allison Hargreaves. I swear she's in the Everest story. They reached the summit and they were followed by American Rob Slater and some other folks and a New Zealander. All six died. She died. That's where she died? Yeah, in a storm. They were returning from the summit. I swear. Oh, Jen, no, no, no. Allison Hargreaves was Tom Ballard's mom. He's the guy that I talked about who died on the Hillary yes. step. Yes. Okay, so that's his mom. That's his mom. Holy cow. I'm like, how do I know that name? That's how. Yeah. Okay. I think you oh. talked about that yeah, she died. So she died and he yeah, and but he she was like an inspiration to him yeah. to climb. Yeah. So she like I said she made it to the summit, but then mm. the weather cuz the weather was still good, but remember the other guy, Hillary was like, "Nope, it looks like Turning it's going to get bad." Yeah. But they're like, no, I think we can do this. Yeah. So anyway, so when they were 
others were coming down. Before reaching Camp 3, they found a bloodstained coat, a climbing boot, and a harness, and they know it was hers. Oh, man. And from a distance, they thought they saw her body, but they didn't go over there to positively identify it. But um, they think she just like literally got blown off the mountain during the storm. Man. So bad. That's so sad. Um, the other ones had to be airlifted out. They like held on through the storm for six days without a tent. Jesus. It's crazy. Okay. So I'm going to move to, and that was in, what did I say? 1995. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In 2008, now there's a movie, it's a 2012 documentary, and I wish I had watched it before, but I was like last minute kind of changed my mind to talk about this and I didn't watch it, but it's called The Summit. Sounds really familiar. 2012. I feel like I've seen it. I feel like. Yeah. Do you think you watched it for yours? Guaranteed. I I mean, I've watched so many now. But it (laughs) is talking about the specific 2008 disaster. Maybe. And I got this whole thing, and I'm going to try to get through it, like, somewhat quickly because it's, like, all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's so many people. Right. You know, if you imagine, like, all these people, like, climbing up a mountain, and some go back, and some come up, and some go over, and some go this, and these interact with these people at different times. Yeah. It's like... And the story of what happened is very convoluted for that reason. Mm -hmm. Because the first people to make it down the mountain reported one thing. And then later, others came down and they're like, no, no, no. It was like this. And I have a picture. And, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. So I ended up, I'm following this article that was from 2018 by C.J. Legger. It's from Base Camp Magazine. All right. They say this was a highly publicized climbing disaster, and it resulted in the death of 11 climbers on um, August 1st of 2008. It also heightened the scrutiny and safety precautions of climber responsibility during expeditions. But overall, it was brought on by a series of events that some were preventable and others not so much. But what it had in common with so many mountaineering disasters including the 1996 Everest disaster that mm. you talked about, yes. was the continuation of a summit push past the safe turnaround time. That was the big thing in Everest, for sure. Like They were too late. Everybody was too late going up. That's the thing. And that's it, is that when... And see, that's why that guy was smart. Mm-hmm. He's like, we can't make it. Yeah. It's not, it's like, I think you really have to, I mean, I think so many people are like, I'm here, I got to do this, I got to finish, like, I won't Mm -hmm. have another chance. Right. But then that's, that's where you really don't have another chance. Right. Because you die. (laughs) Right. Okay. So I'm going to try to talk about this Mm -hmm. because what we have to do is talk about the people and the teams in order to get through this story. And it's going to be really confusing. So just hold on to yourselves. (laughs) We we need like a, uh, we need a chart. What's the, what's, what are I need a dry erase board. I don't know why I'm forgetting the name of uh, those movies where it's like, like the players, you know, it always starts yes. out with like a, yeah. And you need a, like a picture, a close up like of each person, somebody drinking some scotch. So, yeah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So over here, we've got the Norwegian team, which is Lars Nessa, Rolf Bay and Cecilie Skog, the who are married, Rolf and Cecilie Skog, maybe mm-hmm. they're so yeah, they're, they're married. Those two, but Lars mm-hmm. is a friend. Cool. Another Norwegian. Third then wheel. there's the Norit, N-O-R-I-T team. Okay. And that is Wilco Van Rugen, Kas Van de Gevel, <laughs> Jer McDonnell, uh, and Pemba Gaelish Sherpa. So that's a sh- their oh, Sherpa. Okay, their Sherpa. Okay. But Gaelish, G-Y-A-L-J-E. 
I got you. Help me. Okay. That's their Sherpa. And then there was a Korean team. I feel like I'm talking about the Olympics or something. Yeah. There is Kyo Yang Ho, Hyo Park, Hyo Gyoing Kim, Dong Jin Huang, and two Sherpas, which who were cousins. And this is important. Jumik Bahote and Pasong Bahote. Okay. It makes me think of somebody in Peace Corps we knew of Pasong. Oh, son. Yeah. Uh, and uh, their team leader, Mr. Kim. I like that. Let's just stick with Mr. like Kim. Mr. Kim. Dig it. There were two on the American team. You can see them all holding their flags. Definitely. Or wearing like Team America. Under Their underwear is all like American flag underwear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Eric Meyer and Frederick Strang. Cool. There was a Siberian team, Dren Mandic, Pedrug Zag- Zagorak, and Isoplanic. There was a French team, Huegas. And high altitude porter, which is also like P H A P, a HAP, high altitude porter. So it's like a Sherpa, but there's like a little difference. Um, And his name was Gian Beg. And then there was one, some soloists. There was one from Spain, Alberto Zeran and Marco Confortola from Italy. Marco Comfortola. I love Italian names. Gosh. They're so fun, right? I love that you're Italian. Okay. To understand this, we have to understand the dynamics of the weather and the teams present on the mountain at that time. There were several multinational teams, which I just told you about. The climbers from all those areas. um, And towards the commencement of the summit push, all the teams agreed that they will work together to set fixed ropes to give everyone a chance to summit, right? In a safe and speedy manner. But just as what happened in the 1996 Everest disaster, it did not go as it should have. Um, It was reported that there was some high-altitude porters that would be responsible for fixing the ropes at Camp 4. Remember, that's like the highest one before the summit. And with their leader in charge. But their leader was sick. And there was no one, like, leading the porters. Uh, The Korean team was responsible for double-checking the fixed ropes to ensure that they were set properly According to Wilco Van Rusen, they did not hmm. do that for whatever reason. No blame. This is no blame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just what we know. Okay. Yeah. This is what I'm reading. I don't I don't, I don't have any <laughs> so, first hand knowledge. Yeah. yeah. So this team was supposed to set out at 12 a.m., but they did not and remained in their tents. I guess. Um, and that yeah. was when the Sherpa, that Pemba, I'm just going to say Pemba, but it's Gael Shay. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Gael Shay. So nice. I'll just say Pemba Sherpa took on the responsibility. And he was accompanied by that Alberto Zerain, who was the solo climber from Spain. By this time, they were 75 minutes behind schedule. So you can see a timeline. You can see a line yeah. going down. Um, the fixed ropes were set in locations that did not necessarily require fixed ropes for whatever reason. And one of the climbers, Cecile Skog, stated that some of the ropes were fixed very early on in the climb. And that led to there being insufficient rope for the later, more dangerous portions of the climb. Man, this the, is like a this is like a repeat. The te- it's right? so similar. The teams, yeah, the teams had to face the decision of returning to the starting position to retrieve rope um, led by Rujin. Um, and continue f- placing the fixed ropes for the later part of the climb closer to the summit. And so that was lost time, right? Coupled mm-hmm. with the fact that they were starting, that the starting teams did not begin their summit push on time. Okay. 
So already on time, already ropes misplaced, missing ropes, yeah. whatever. By the end of the majority, or sorry, by the time the majority of the climbers reached the bottleneck on the Abruzzi Spur. So this bottleneck area is the most dangerous yeah. part of the summit. They call it the death zone. And this is going to be important in my last story. Um, but by the time they reach that area, and there's also, there's this Serac. Serac is... Oh, shoot. I had it. But it's basically like a glacial like piece of ice that's like an overhang. I think it's when two crevasses are like they're kind of together. But it's like a basically an overhang and it can just break off chunks. At any moment. And, yeah. it, and it really loves to. It, just for fun. Especially in really inopportune moments, really dangerous times. In this area, so it was late already by the time they're getting there, 4 p.m. There was not enough time to summit K2 and descend within daylight. Oh, no. Very similar, right? Some of the teams decided not to make the attempt, given the circumstances. Mm -hmm. One of the climbers um, who chose not to continue was that Frederick Strang, the American. Yeah. Apparently, he went back maybe 10 years later and tried again, I I think. I'll talk. I think it talks about that more later. He turned around. He's like, I'm not. This is not. I saw the movie. I read the books. <laughs> I, I, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Like, this is all looking very similar to bad. Me. Yeah. So let's talk about what happened. The first death, it was um, at the bottleneck is where this occurred. The Siberian climber, Dren Mandic, mm-hmm. he unclipped his rope in this very sketchy spot He un- to go past um, Cecily Skog, which was the um, Norwegian yeah. lady. Uh, from the Norwegian team, and um, it, also her husband, Rolf Bay, and that Lars Nessa, okay? That's the Norwegian team. And while he was doing this, he fell, and he just slid down the bottleneck. According to what happened next, the Dren, he's the one who unclipped, Dren stood up, which led the climbers to believe he was fine, but then he fell again. This time, it was clear something was, like, wrong with him. Yeah. So the climbers at the bottleneck stated that they talk to each other like mm-hmm. should somebody should we go down should we help him yeah but they all looked at it especially the the norit team discuss they said later that there were still the uh siberian team was down below mm-hmm. and anybody could have helped him oh. like they didn't need to go down because so there were people still coming up that could have helped, helped him out yeah like easier than it would be for them yeah yeah and so he was in a spot where he could have been accessed According to them. Okay. So they decided to keep going. Rolf Bay, who also, uh, who was the husband of Cecile, she, or he, decided to go back. He didn't feel like he'd be able to summit, but he encouraged his wife to keep going with their friend, Nessa, like the other guy, said, just go. You guys can do this. According to Pemba Sherpa, Mm. remember, I can't say that. The conversation between climbers only lasted three to four minutes before everyone continued going leaving dren behind wow yeah it was frederick strang the american who decided to climb higher because he had stopped right yeah to try to reach dren and provide him with some assistance but when he arrived the other two siberian uh, climbers were already there Mm -hmm. and they said that he had already died wow okay do they know how he fell it was just impact yeah i think it's just that he fell and then he fell again right and he 
didn't make it. Um, he did say that he had known Dren was already dead. He would not have risked his life to try to bring him down. It is an unwritten rule in mountaineering when a climber is immobile. Any attempts to try to save that person by moving them can result in your own death. Mm. However, since they were already there, they agreed that they should at least bring Dren back down to Camp 4. And they could give him, that way, they could give him, uh, they say a proper burial, but probably they mean like somewhere else. Yeah. Right. Um, it was during this uh, descent that the second death occurred. And this is, um, this was the Jihan Beg. Beg. It's the Pakistani high altitude porter. Oh, yeah. He set out to help the Siberian, uh, uh, sorry, Serbians. Did I say Siberians this I whole time? I think you've been saying Siberians. I'm you really sorry. Serbians. I okay. meant Serbians. Okay, okay. I'm really sorry. <laughs> this is a lot, guys. Um, he set out to help the Serbians and Strang retrieve Dren's body. And during the rescue, he lost his footing. no. It had been agreed when the teams first started bringing the body down that if any one climber should fall, they should release the rope that tied everyone together. And in the documentary, The Summit, Frederick Strang's voice can be heard frantically screaming, release the rope, release the rope. Beg did. Afterwards, he slipped and fell in the, into a, the abyss. Oh. Um, and his, they say his death is a prime example of what can happen when trying to move a dead or inca incapacitated body on a mountain such as K2. They should have just left him there. I mean, I, that's yeah. the thing, right? I get, I get it. The majority of the problems happened when people were on the descent. Mm. So... And so the teams that made it to the summit, so Spanish climber Alberto Zaranda went by himself, was climbing solo during that expedition. He was the first one to reach the, su the summit and descend. On his way down, he passed the Norwegian team who were on their way up. Mm -hmm. That was Lars Nessa and Cecile. Cecile. Oh, okay. The wife with the friend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The majority of the climbers reached the summit between 5 and 7. Team Norit made it at 720 and the Italian soloist. Comfortola. <laughs> he summited at 7.30. After Pembe, uh, the... Remember Pembe? Sherpa? No, this Pemba? one... Oh, sorry. This is Pemba Dorje and Ger... Ger I think this is the Norit team. After they okay. summited, McDonald gave Pemba his equipment, like his camera, his SA... His SAT... SAT. <laughs> his satellite phone and other items. And him having that equipment later was vital, I guess, in retelling the story. Mm. On the Norwegian team's descent, they caught up with Rolf, the husband, that stayed behind. Right, right, right. All three started to go down together towards the fixed ropes. And 15 minutes after reaching the fixed ropes, it was dark. Jeez. They were um, crossing the fixed ropes together. Lars Nessa asked Rolf if he wanted to go first. And Rolf said, Lars, I go first. You look after my wife, Cecile. It was the last thing he would say because within seconds, an ice fell swept him off his line right in front of his wife and he was killed instantly. Jesus. Like it was like the ice broke off. Yeah. And hit him. The ice fall that killed him also cut those fixed ropes that were like a lifeline and they were the only way to get down. As it got darker, the 15 climbers who were on their way down progressed slowly. Each was, they were all tired. They were like, don't have oxygen, so they're kind of off. Yeah. Eventually, they reached the Korean team, at which point it was decided that everyone would descend in a more organized manner, attached to one rope. They said it was, Pembe Dorje said it was impossible to bring them down with the same rope because they sat down. Like, some of them sat down. I think because they were just really exhausted. Like, it's trying yeah. to get, like... <sighs> Hurting cats, but, yeah. but exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. Also, according to Pemba... The climbers, 
it's because they were sitting down and it was really hard, right, to bring them down, mm-hmm. that the climbers detached themselves from the rope. And then they started to wander toward the site of the fixed ropes. This was the other one. Leave. So, okay, I think what happened is the Koreans were really tired. Yeah. They were on this rope. Everyone else was like, no, no, no. And they so they, the other people, climbers, got off that rope and started going towards the fixed ropes. And that left the Koreans attached to the long rope that once held everyone together. Mm-hmm. Um, further up, Marco Comfortola stated that he told Jared McDonald that it is a bad idea to continue past the traverse in the dark. Mm-hmm. So Marco, Jer, and Ruishin, they all like did that shelter. The bioback thing. Right, yeah, above yeah. that traverse. Yeah. Um, and somewhere around this time, a climber by the name of Karim... Meherban, I think I said the name, Meherban, from Pakistan was killed. Just they, don't, they don't know how or... They don't know anything. They don't Jesus. know when, where, or how that person died. It's crazy. Then, not long after that, Kaz van de Gevel of the Nort team and mm-hmm. Hugh, remember this is the French team? Yeah. Hughes de Aubrede <laughs> from the French team. They continued to traverse in the dark. The Gavel was in the lead. And after he made it through that bottleneck crossing, he saw a climber, a climber fall to their death. Comfortola said he heard a loud rumble from his bivy and saw that a headlamp falling, and they believed that it was the French climber. Oh, God. They say that they think he was tired and had run out of oxygen. Well, they knew that that was happening, but right. they think that was the reason he fell. As the night progressed, Pemba, Dorje, and Cecile, who had just lost her husband, tragically, right I, in front of her face. I can't even... Yeah. Yeah. Lars and Gavel were amongst, they were, so there were seven climbers. They reached Camp 4 in the dark. All, by this time, 13 others were still missing from the mountain. It's just like, that's a horror movie. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, by the morning on August 7th, it was clear that the fixed ropes had been swept away by an ice fall. Rujin was struck by snow blindness and told the other two climbers that he had to descend now while he still had some vision. He left them at their bivy site. On his way down, he came. Um, he found the Korean team, which was these three climbers and one Sherpa. Um, according to him, I was just climbing down and suddenly those Koreans were just hanging over there. I was thinking, what the hell are they doing here? I didn't understand anything about it. Of them, of the three Koreans hanging on the snow ledge, one had reached out to Ro- Rojin. Um, the other two were not moving. They were all tangled in the rope that had been left that had left them like after they stopped above the traverse and right. the other ones clipped off, right? The extra rope. Yeah. So they were, from what I understand, they were just hanging in like weird ways. The Korean leader suggested a rescue mission. So I think that it sounds like there there was four of them, the leader and then the three and then the Sherpa. Yeah. So the leader must have been trying to help them, but they were saying that it's like basically everything that was happening, they didn't, they thought that maybe the climbers the two were dead and one was about to be dead. Right. And they're like, no, we cannot. We have to get down this mountain like now. Jesus. So the Korean, so Mr. Kim, who's the leader, sent the two Sherpas to rescue the climbers. Mm-hmm. And that Rujin, who was descending due to snow blindness, stated later that on his way down, he looked up and saw Comfortola and Jared with the Koreans. And then in an interview later, they said, the Comfortola said, everything was smashed up, motioning around his head. There was blood everywhere. Oh, so maybe yeah. they got hit by ice or rocks or something. I think they fell. Oh. They just fell and they were hanging. 
Jesus. Yeah, it sounds terrible. Around 12 p.m., the two Sherpas sent to rescue the Korean climbers found the Western climber at the bottleneck, and he was still alive. So this is the sixth death. Mm. Pemba radioed to them with instructions to bring the climber down. That's the one they found on their way up to get the Koreans. Right. But they refused and told Mr. Kim. Uh, it said that Mr. Tim told them, told them to continue up and retrieve the Koreans. Uh, no one agreed to climb up with Pemba, so he went alone. The climber he found was, oh, sorry, this is somebody else, Marco uh, Confortola. Oh. So Confortola made it. He survived, so I, we'll get there. So around 2 p.m., the Korean Sherpas had reached the top of the bottleneck and were with those three Korean climbers. They radioed to Pemba that uh, one other climber was also there, but he'd already been hit by ice and fell down the mountain. And Pemba asked for the color of his down suit and the climb that the climber was wearing. He said it was red. And Pemba now realized that the climber, that this was his climbing partner, that Jer McDonald. Oh my God. Which I think he was Irish. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's part of the Norit team. No, I believe he's Irish. Okay. So the next death, it's like, it's a timeline of deaths. Um, at the time that Pemba was tending to Marco, mm-hmm. the Italian climber, another ice fall occurred and swept the bodies of the three hanging Koreans, their Sherpa and the Sherpa who had been sent to rescue them oh, down God. the mountain. Oh, no. All five were killed. Well, if they weren't already. Right. There's some uncertainty as to whether or not, like I said, they have, that they were still alive because they had been like hanging there. For so long, yeah. And didn't look good, according to some of the others. The two Sherpas on the Korean team were cousins, and that's that Pasang Bahote and Jumik Bahote. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's there three of them total, but one survived, and they, but they're all related. That, But with that same last name, Bahote, B-H-O-T-E. So the rescuing Sher- Sherpa was hesitant to retrieve the Korean climbers. However, the Sherpas employed um, by that team had stated that the Korean leader paid them. So they felt like, you know, they, they had, had to, to do it. Right. Yeah. So that was all the deaths. The survivors, so Marco Comfortola was rescued after 36 hours in the death zone, um, which Jeez. is that, yeah. that spot. Wilco Van Ruzen uh, was found by Kaz, that Gavel, and Pemba. Wilco spent more than 60 hours in the death zone. Jeez. Yeah, and it was all really controversial because, like I said, so Marco Comfortilla was rescued first, so he was the first story. Mm-hmm. Um, but as people came down, it was like a lot of different stories, and I won't go into all of it. It just watched the summit and get all the information but it just kind of like tells you how crazy it is. Yeah. But here's some after the aftermath. So Cecily, the Skog, the one who lost her husband in 2010, a couple of years later, she became the first woman to cross the Antarctica unassisted and unsupported. So she's just a badass. Dang. Um, and her, they say her accomplishment would later be followed by the Ice Maidens Expedition from Britain. I don't know, like, who's that? Ice Maidens. First ever female team to cross the Antarctica unsupported and unassisted. Just uh, similar to Scott Sears, Lieutenant Scott Sears made it in the history books. um, And Shackleton of of that. Ernest? Yeah. Well, I think that expedition was sponsored by Shackleton, the one, the old one. Um, Wilco Van Rugen became the only mountaineer to have ever spent two nights without shelter on the King of Mountains on K2 and survive. I mean... And both he and Marco lost all of their toes to frostbite. No. Yeah. 
Pemba, the Pemba Sherpa, spent 90 hours in the dust zone. 70 of those were spent coordinating the rescue of the lost climbers. Like, he's just doing his best. Yeah. Six months later, National Geographic gave him the honor of Adventure of the Year. I mean, okay. (laughs) What is that? Did he get some money? Just give him money. Like, a lot of money. Did they give him a cash prize? Like, I hope. Did they buy him a really nice warm couch and some, like, blankets and... Just a lot. Some excellent gear. Yeah. Um, Frederick Strang, who was the American, he went on to do it again, like I said, in 2017 and again in 2018. Oh, wow. But it says he'll be attempting to summit again. I think he's never summited. They oh, said he, he has go- not succeeded yet from what we know uh, so far. But seems like. Um, but this is also from 2018. So could, yeah. he maybe he did. Seems like he like is just understanding that like at some point you know or maybe maybe he just has so much trauma around yeah that first incident you know that he yeah. just, he's like well I can't do it I just can't do he it he gets scared yeah well it sounds really dangerous too mm-hmm. yeah. i mean if the weather's so slightly off i would be traumatized but good on him for trying alberto zarain who was the spanish, spanish soloist yeah. He actually died on Nanga Parbat, which I think you talked about in the summer of 2017. Interesting. Yeah. So this is basically one of the worst mountaineering stories in history and most controversial also because there's so many different versions of the same event. But I'm like, nobody was like had enough oxygen in their brain, I think, to be able to tell an accurate story. I feel like you got to take into account, yeah, that there might be like hallucinations or... Well, there's like different languages all over the place there. Yeah, languages, perceptions, mm-hmm. all the things. It was also never really confirmed what originally happened to the Korean team and why they were just found hanging on an ice ledge. That's weird. Yeah. And the bodies of the ones that fell, that fell, fell, were never recovered. So Jer, they never, they say he lives on as a guardian of the mountain, they oh. call him, because he was the became the first Irishman to summit K2. Anyway, that was, so 18 climbers who ascended, 11 survived. Wow. Check out the documentary, The Summit, if you didn't already. I'm going to watch it. I should have watched it already. So I could tell that story. But this is the story, and I'm getting to the one story that I saw (laughs) recently. This is from 2023. And this was in August. Of course, it's not going to be recent because they only go from June to August. And it seems like August is like... When all the bad stuff happens. Not the time to go. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's (laughs) like... Like the weather is changing. Right. Mm -hmm. So there was some video footage, and this is what I saw, that came out in August of climbers on the K2 on that death zone um, ridge. Yeah. And they were apparently walking past a porter named Mohammed Hassan, who had fallen at that area. Um, They were just... It looked like they were just stepping over him to get across. And not helping him. That's how it looked from the video. Yeah. And particularly, everybody was upset with this Norwegian mountaineer climber named Kristen Harila. She was in the middle of doing this. um, She was trying to break some records for climbing, reaching all the summits, like all Uh the, like in the 8,000er thing, faster than anyone ever had. So she was trying to reach the summit faster like break that record so muhammad hassan was a 27 year old porter um and he worked for the climbers of k2 he was a member of the 
uh, Layla Peak Expedition. That's the company. Mm. And on July 27, 2023, he was assigned to assist with rope fixers uh, by, it says, Alex Ambrov Seven Summit Club. More than 150 men and women were walking, were doing that summit at that time. Crazy. It's a lot, it's of, a people. lot of people. And they were grasping. They were grasping lines that had been anchored into the mountainside just hours before. Some had waited months, years for this ascent. They had a small window. Winds had finally calmed down on that morning, giving them their first chance to summit. According to what they were told, there was going to be a storm on the next day. Mm. So they're like, it's either now or we have to come back next year. Yeah. So they had that thinking, right? Just to set the mindset of these the people. In the They say... That there was this rope fixing team. They were a handpicked squad of the strongest Sherpas and guides, and they were working through very thick snow. They opened the route by securing ropes along that Abruzzi spur that mm-hmm. I was telling you about, which is the way where people go. Near the front of the pack was that Kristen Har- Harila. Uh, by sunrise, she and her guide, who was Tenjin Lama L A M A Sherpa. Mm. We'll just say Tenjin Sherpa would become the fastest people to reach the world's 14 tallest peaks. Wow. Then there was Muhammad. And when they came up, they found him upside down that night. He was dangling at 27,000 feet. Jeez. Hanging above the abyss. His face was buried in the snow. But according to, well, I'll get into it, but he was still alive for a time. Jeez. His death would really cause a lot of controversy right especially that video so and a lot of debate right there's the people that are like well he couldn't be helped and they were told to go up the summit because there was no other chance and somebody else was going to help him so everybody on their way up yeah saw him yeah and then you're saying that the people who made it to the top first when they came down he was saw him so when they went up he was probably still alive sitting up no, he was dangling upside down. The whole time? Uh, I think were they were up. able to turn him around at a point, but uh. his stomach was exposed for a long time. <sighs> like, he didn't have the proper gear. So, that was, yeah, around 100 or so people that just walked past him. And people mostly got angry. And I'm going to talk about some of it. So, this is from Business Insider. Okay magazine Mm -hmm. and they're like we have the exclusive and this is an insider story and so they they got had an interview with one of the climbers but he didn't want to share his name because there was so much bad Mm. publicity and controversy and this lady that was um harila who was trying to do this you know record-breaking ascent was like receiving death threats lambasted yeah oh big time because She was like, yep, I see you, bye. But she was like, no, that's not at all what we did. Right. So her story was that they were going up. It was around 2 Mm a.m., which I'm like, 2 a.m.? I think that's when they start because it gets light around 4 a.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They thought something was wrong. She had reached K2's giant Serac, which is that big, like I said, that big glacier ice that sticks out, like an ice cliff that was hanging on the side of the summit. Mm -hmm. They were about 300 meters below the peak the fixing rope team was like doing their thing but a few climbers in front of harila had stopped and then to look at the cause of the holdup her team started like going up ahead one of the first three people in line on the k2 was this climber that he didn't want to give his name yeah let's just call him 
John. <laughs> John Smith. John Smith. He was one of the initial few people to see the porter close to death, like people when he was still alive. Right. It was still dark, but he can make out a figure stuck below the trail. And this is a quote. At some point, we heard somebody saying, ah, uh, ah, uh, like yelling yeah. as though something was wrong. We went ahead and I saw the person hanging upside down with his belly uncovered. Muhammad had basically fallen on a steep section of the, uh, that area traverse where the slopes are slanted about 70 degrees. For roughly two hours from the summit, it spans from 50 to 100 meters across and climbers have to walk across that area that we talked about before. And he hung there unable to help himself about five meters beneath the trail. So there was a companion of his that was further down the mountain path and his companion, the other porter, wasn't sure how to, what to do. Right. He seemed very like, not sure. And John saw that an, I, there was an ice screw holding the fixed ropes that had come loose near Muhammad. And he thought that that may have been yanked out as he fell. Yeah. His, I don't know what this is, a Jumar, G-U-M-A-R. It, I guess, okay, it's a handheld device for gripping fixed ropes. It was okay. still dangling from the lines anchored above. So I think he didn't... He just kind of like fell and then it unanchor, unanchored. I guess stuff. it unanchored. Okay. Why he was incapacitated after... Because he didn't seem like he fell very far. Right. But they think that he probably had altitude sickness. He didn't have oxygen. And or could have been a lot of different things. And then once he fell and he was upside down, he maybe couldn't orient. And like they said, it seemed like his clothes were slipping around his upper torso. So his lower abdomen was exposed. His legs were twisted in the ropes and he just couldn't do it upright himself. Yeah. And he was probably very disoriented and injured. Yeah. Hurt. Harila said that she and her team decided to help him since they were some of the strongest climbers and Sherpas yeah. that were there. John remembers the same. As the Sherpa's client and not an experienced mountaineer, they said they focused on, you know, him. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm not a Sherpa. I'm just trying to get there, right? Mm -hmm. But it seems like they focused on making sure they didn't get in the way. My biggest contribution would be to make sure I'm not a cause for another rescue. Right. Which makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? Yeah, that makes sense. The attempt would take hours, and they were already exhausted. Rescuers had to move cautiously, especially since the ice anchor had become unsecured. The treacherous slopes continued hundreds of meters below, and if anyone were to somehow come loose, they would die for sure. Yeah. Early into the rescue, a young Sherpa attempted to add another ice crew, but slipped in the fresh snow. Both climbers said he was visibly shaken, but he was okay. Harila, Tenjin, her Sherpa... Um, Tarso and several Sherpas worked to add new ice screws and secure the lines on Muhammad to t and turn him around right. and pull him up one inch at a time. Jeez. He said, think about pulling a 150-pound bag, like more, like more than likely he was virtually unconscious, if not unconscious, he couldn't help himself. So it's just like dead weight. Dead weight, yeah. You're at what, eight? Through 8,300 or 8,400 yeah. meters. You're using supplemental oxygen. You've got goggles on. They're foggy. It's the middle of the night. <laughs> so all anyway, the things. Yeah. all the things. I mean, even when they were talking about people going on Everest, like the, just the steps to go up are yeah. exhausting. Right. Yeah. So, so they did, they were able to pull him up and turn him around, but they said he was not in good shape. So, and one of them gave Muhammad his oxygen tank and tried to calm him down. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were all these rows of people. 
there was like a huge line of people mm-hmm. behind and they were trying, nobody could move. They were basically like stuck. And then a few minutes later, there was an avalanche. <gasps> it was about 3 a.m. And like it's the route was jammed with climbers. And they said, as soon as we crested, you could basically see this line of headlamps going up the mountain. Probably most of the people going to the summit were right there. Like everybody was jammed up. And people were getting confused, like radios were going off. We started hearing radios about an accident. Someone had fallen from the path and no one could get him up. He remembered hearing these things. Mm. Along the chain of climbers, people were starting to get anxious. And the rescue was blocking the climbing, you know, people from going up. And almost every climber now was stuck in the bottleneck, which sits right under the Great Serac, which makes you even more scared because a piece of ice, like what happened to that one guy, could fall down and just, that's it. As they decided to try and just keep moving up and try to like position him in a safer position, yeah, that's when they heard a rumbling. And one of the climbers said, and I looked up and saw a white wall of snow coming at us. The avalanche missed the bottleneck, barely, oh my avoiding like mass death. Yeah. It would be catastrophic. Just everybody. Would yes. Be, yeah, yeah. So there was like... Yeah, it would have just wiped everybody down. But by the time the avalanche subsided, they were they, there was snow that came up and like covered them to their knees, but didn't knock them down. Yeah. And they knew that there were going to be other small avalanches that would happen that night. And they said there were at least three Western companies abandoned their climbs because of the risk. Oh, man. They're yeah. like, nope, let's go. So now there were two things they were dealing with. There was that... Muhammad was on the, you know, bottleneck and there was bad conditions. So her Harila, she split up her team. So she and the Sherpa Tenjin went ahead and mm-hmm. moved up, starting to summit. She's like, I'm gonna do this. I mean, I get it. It seems like there's a lot of people working but on it. It seems something. like she's got a lot of funding and a good team. And so she sent the rest of her team to go and help with Muhammad and the companion. Right. So I I feel like she did everything she was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, she can't personally rescue him in that situation. Right. You're, I get it. So this, the controversy is over the next minutes because they moved him, her team moved him out of the way, and then people started going. And they were saying that people were stepping on him. Yeah. I don't think anybody stepped on him. They stepped over him. Mm-hmm. But in the end... He didn't make it, right? right? Everybody pressed forward. Um, People made it to the summit and came back down. And there he was. They were able to bring him down eventually. But there were some folks, there were some Austrian mountaineers who, when the avalanche happened, they turned back. And then they went and put a drone out to kind of like see what was going on. And they're the ones that videoed. That got the video. Yeah. And they were very upset because they didn't really know the what the was going story. the whole story right yeah so they were very upset and they couldn't believe what was happening everybody you know so that's the footage that got out they actually after it was done they were really really affected by it um these uh mountaineers that filmed that they actually went back and met with his family oh wow so apparently um Muhammad had three little boys oh. and his wife, and he had taken this job because his mother is sick. She's diabetic, Jesus. and he didn't have the proper equipment, but he was just trying to make money. And they said that when they went there, it was so heartbreaking, and they gave the family all the cash they had. But they also started a GoFundMe for the family, which raised uh, over $150,000. Mm. And they said Porter's 
don't even have the most basic equipment. They don't have like gas canisters, stoves to make water. They just like, a lot of them are like, just what you would imagine. They're just going right. up with whatever they have and really Jesus. risking their lives yeah. because this is a, one of the, maybe the better paying jobs. Mm -hmm. So after that, this happened, the government banned uh, Layla Peak Expeditions, which is who he worked for, yeah. from managing teams for the next two years. Okay. So they're like on a ban, which is hard for the company, but it's like if he he if he had the right equipment, mm. he shouldn't have died. Yeah. He didn't even have a proper coat, like the down coat. Like he didn't have anything that would have helped him in the cold. He didn't have right. oxygen. He didn't have anything. On September 7th, the Pakistani government issued this like huge report because people were trying to blame like maybe press charges against that lady. Oh, wow. And her team. For not helping, they were there was like a lot of blame being like, why did you guys just let him? Why did you guys just step over him and let him die? Kind of situation, right? But it basically found that no one was culpable, right, for what happened. But it just talked about they say exposed deep issues across the mountaineering industry that must be fixed. I mean, yeah, for sure, yeah. So there's a whole thing, and I was going to go into it, but I feel like I pretty much talked about everything but it says that as he was approaching the, him and the other ones were approaching that part of the k2 climb on the abruzzi route he lagged the rope team carrying a large load of rope and other supplies between 12 and 2 a.m he fell five to seven meters downward from a narrow boot path on a 70 degree angle snow slope at the traverse pulling out a snow screw that attached the fixed ropes to the mountain his carabiner is that how you carabiner say it? carabiner and Jumar were the only, uh, that were attached to the rope stopped his fall. And then, I mean, they, they kind of go into it. I mean, basically he fell. Yeah. And he was just didn't have the equipment to sustain his life. And it was no one's fault. It was just an accident. It was an accident. Yeah. But that he died early in the morning at 8,200 meters. Um, I thought that we should support... This organization, mm -hmm. it was like, it was really interesting. It's called the Intrepid Foundation, oh. the intrepidfoundation.org. And it says, we empower our travelers to make real impact on the communities they visit. And so since 2002, they have supported over 130 organizations across the world, and they're creating positive impact through the joy of travel, community, and connection. So basically, they look at how Tourism affects communities and try to tie links in there so that it's safer for... Like a more ethical tourism. That ethical tourism. Like positive for the community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They said, with our local knowledge and intrepid teams on the ground, we support our carefully chosen partners to make positive impacts and create solutions on important issues. This ensures your donations aren't just giving back, but giving responsibly, impactfully where it's needed. And in 2019... They, before this happened, yeah. they launched this Step Up for Porters Challenge. It was a fundraising initiative to engage trekkers and raise money for porter welfare. Mm. Uh, it's for anyone with an interest in doing good and getting fit. So, like, you know, it was like something they did, but they also, this is the kind of work they do. Right. And I guarantee something's going to probably come out of this with this foundation because it just it's shining a light and you talked about it so i didn't want to go like way yeah. down that road of talking about sherpas and kind of like their life and how a lot of them have no choice there's no other option there's no other option yeah how, how else are they going to make their living there's so many things and we could talk about with all this like i said earlier like 
giving too many permits. Like there's too many people going up the hills. Or mm-hmm. the hills. Did I say up the hills? Just the hills. The hills. It's fine. Yeah, Sorry, I the dogs it. are distracting me because they they're like they, shaking around. You know what? It, they hear you say organization to support or something. It's something and then they that just they know. know. They just know that it's, it, you know like, what? Like literally I was over. like organization to support and they stood up and started shaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, okay, we're done. Let's go. All right. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so no, so people, um, if they're giving out, like there's too many people trying to trek these mountains, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, more is death. That, is that ethical? Or is is it eth- it right. And there's just more poop up there. So much poop. So much frozen poop. <sighs> anyway, so I, I, you guys should go check out this story. Um, I mean, the video is, it's just looking at, it took me a while to figure out what was going on because you're just like, yeah, there's some people walking up this mountain. It's not like fully clear. And then, and then when you read about it and you zoom in, you're like, holy crap, that's a guy like laying there and they're just going around him. Jeez. I don't know. It's weird. But I, but at the same time, I get it. Right. I get it. It's such a dangerous place. It's like when I worked at the wildlife refuge, we had... Drownings, like I was never there. Yeah. I there were some near ones when I was there, but when I was working, nothing happened. Thank goodness. But yeah. there were ones that have happened, and what they always trained us is, you know, because it's there's a lot of rip currents. It's, it's a really, really bad. It, it's a really it's dangerous so area. It's so beautiful, and people are like, "Oh, I'm going to go swim there," and I'm it's like, "So dangerous." I think I would only wade in the water, honestly. Uh, in the yeah, because it's it looks, yeah, yeah, dangerous. And yeah. so, and then that's what they told us is. If you, you know, if you see somebody's in distress and it's out of your reach, you need to wait for emergency responders or you're going to also be a, you know, need rescue. (laughs) Yeah. Just you and the other person are going to talk about how it's real hard because of course you want to rescue somebody. Yes. But that's how. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You have to, I guess, weigh it out and make Mm -hmm. that decision. And that's a hard decision. Right. Yeah. It's real hard. Anyway, Sherpas do get a, like, yeah, kind of a rough. It's rough. It's rough. I mean, I would think if you really loved it, but a lot Mm -hmm. of them, you know, some of the articles I read were a lot of these porters because they don't have the equipment they need. They're not well trained that a lot of the climbers have come back to say that they can see the fear in their eyes. They can see when they don't know what they're doing, Oh God! when they're scared, when they don't have what they need. And imagine how that makes you feel. (laughs) Right. Uh, yeah, you're just like adding some more shit to the if top you're of that more, mountain. If uh, you're more experienced than the person who's supposed to be guiding you yeah. in placing the ropes. Maybe a lot of those poops are fear poops. <laughs> this is fear poops. <laughs> it's fear poops. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, for sure. It, it makes me think of like the one time I did a rappelling tower. Yeah. I don't do heights. I just yeah. don't do them. And it took me forever to get up the rappelling tower, just walking the stairs. I was so shaky. And then I got to the top. If I had seen any fear, mm-hmm. any lack of confidence in the people who were like pushing, like letting me over the edge, I right. probably would have just like, yeah, it would have been bad. Done. It would have been bad. But but you look in their eyes and they're like so confident. Like, I know. You're doing great. Right. You're, you're doing great. Everything yeah. is safe. And you're like, Cool. If they were not like that, then yeah, of course not. But imagine you're on like Everest (laughs) and your Sherpa is like scared, scared. Yeah. Yeah. I just would. Well, I mean, I would never be there in the first place, but but I just would. um, I feel like I would go back. Yeah. If I saw fear in somebody's eyes. Yeah. I would just be like, I'm just going to go back. 
like, uh, you know, <laughs> I feel like I can try this again next year for sure. Anyway. So Megan. Yes, Jen. I know it's kind of a long, like a lot of names and a lot of things happen, but I think the yeah. message is the same. But anyway, and I just wanted to talk about this poor guy who, yeah. who passed away on the side of this mountain, who's just That's trying to support sad. his family. And, you know, I feel like a lot of people, this affected a lot of people. Yeah. It was videos. Yeah. That's the difference now, right? Is, is it videos are out videos, there. Videos. So yeah. many videos. Before, it's like stories. In 86, nothing. Nothing. They got nothing. In yeah. 95, nothing. Yeah. Even 2008. Not a lot. Not a lot. There was some pictures. People are like, let's leave our cell phones back at camp. They're big. They're clunky. Camp. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't have time for that. No one can carry that. It was, there was space for that. Nowadays. <laughs> they can only take their SAT phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, uh, what would you take with you? Yeah, as for our emergency preparedness kit. Uh huh. Man, Jen, you know, <laughs> I did want to make a joke about the SAT phone, and that maybe, <laughs> maybe like you need your some... ACT phone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you need another kind of phone that can just get you out of there. But so I think probably the thing that I would need, I, if I were the kind of person who's climbing a mountain, right is um yeah a, I, you kind of said it, a strong cell a strong sense of self-preservation yes uh like i think you have to take away the hubris you have to take away the pride you have to be like let me set this ego over here yes because this is not a good decision but i think people i wonder if people who are mountaineers like these mountain climbers they have like this you know this goal like what's the percentage of them that if they didn't have that ego or hubris or whatever would be, would be able first, to do that yeah, would be there in yeah, the first place. yeah they would be like us we'd chilling on the couch yeah so yeah but i think i think you need that healthy yeah self-preservation a healthy sense of self self-preservation a healthy sense of self-preservation i think yeah. that um the one the one guy who's Mallory the, yeah the, or Hillary sorry Hillary, Mallory. yeah uh Hillary yeah was like why well, in the and I feel like it's probably something that was taught yeah you know that he came from a family uh, who had experience and maybe they were like super in they, those are the stories those are the stories he like, heard yeah sitting around at, at like Thanksgiving they're like listen this is the deal because like, probably they saw a lot of friends and family yes. like die from not and and then the conversation Taking that first cue to turn around right and then the conversation becomes when things are not good don't do this we've seen too many people right you know die this way so. yeah like that 2008 being yeah. a repeat of the what was it 96 97 yeah, 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 yeah 96 uh, Everest i mean this this last story with the porter is more about like, caring people well it's Not more. Caring, it's the perception of other people who aren't in that situation, right? And, it's the perception of how could people step over this? Yeah, person. how could they do that? But I, I totally, after listening or watching or hearing like about all of these stories, you realize that like, well, no, it makes sense because so many people before them tried mm -hmm. to help other people and died in the process. Well, also, I think because there were people helping him. Yes. So what if you were walking past that and you saw one or two people that were like, I've got this, go ahead. You're just going to go. You're going to go. Yeah. You're going to be like, okay, there's nothing I can like, do. Like, what can I do? Right? Yeah. And there's a line of people behind you, mm -hmm. a line of people in front of you. Yeah. You're just going to keep going. I totally get it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that these people are heartless. And I think that 
They say that afterwards, usually people would celebrate, there would be parties, but most right. of the teams did not celebrate. They felt really awful, awful. but there yeah. were a couple that did. They say there were a few fireworks, a few people that celebrated. Yikes. That was, people were not happy about that because it's I mean, in die. that case, you really got to. Those are the people that maybe. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But, the, but for the most part, people were not celebratory after right. that event, so. Uh, anyway, yeah, those are just sad stories. It is sad. I'm sorry, but happy holidays, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, holidays. let's just not let's just not climb some scary mountain. I mean. Listen, I, I think enjoy the snow from inside with a cup of hot cocoa. You're good. Agreed. I mean, enjoy the just snow on a movie in Guam. That's how we do it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, um, see some tire snowmen. Go make some tire snowmen. It's all about re- reduce, reuse, recycle. You That's know? right. <laughs> I'm so proud of this village for coming up with such a creative idea. So good. But yeah, happy holidays, everyone. I hope yeah. you enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed our uh, Patreon bonus episode we put out last week yeah 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 it's i think by the time this comes out it will have been out one week which is also that's a little bit of a you know christmasy holiday like a little gift yeah and honestly i love (laughs) that story is crazy if you haven't listened to it you should go listen to it it. it's pretty fun i was i think the whole time i was like the story isn't real it can't be (laughs) (laughs) the story is not real but it's Uh, real i re-listened to it before we put it back out just to make sure it was okay it was pretty funny (laughs) nothing too crazy Yeah. yeah Anyway, all right. All right. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jen and Megan, and edited by the talented and super nice guy, Jonathan Pillsbury. Thank you, Jonathan. Yay. Yay. Uh, All of this is possible because of an amazing group of Nature Nerd patrons. If you would like to be part of our super cool nerd community on Patreon, just go to our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com, or you can check our link tree on our Instagram page, which is... Kind of amazing. It is. I'm sorry. But it is. Uh, another way you can support is by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Uh, if you do, Jen will send you a really kick-ass sticker. You just have to send us your mailing address. I will do it if I forget. Hey, if you left us a review and I didn't send you a sticker, send us an email. Let me know. Just let me know. Uh, also, we would love to hear from you. We get a lot of our stories from listener suggestions. A lot. We kind of steal them. All the time. Yeah. Um, Because they're so good. So if you would like to do that, go to our website. We have a contact page at you're going to die out there.com or an email. You're going to die out there at gmail.com. And at the beginning of the episode, we give you a shout out. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And until next time. Don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.